from the Public Radio Exchange and NPR. I'm Al Letson, and you're listening to State of the Reunion, a new show that celebrates community and the people who bring us together. This week for Black History Month, we're focusing on one man. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Actually, it's not that man. While Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech is what most of us remember from the civil rights movement, it might not have ever happened if it weren't for one man you probably have never heard of. The problem can never be stated in terms of black and white. Coming up on State of the Reunion, Bayard Rustin, a black gay pacifist who changed the course of American history. But first, this news. Podcast listeners, hello, you're listening to State of the Reunion. I'm Al Letson, and every episode we go to a different American city or town and look at what makes community. Who are the people that bring it together? What are the issues they face? This episode is a little bit different, though. We're focusing in on one man, a Mr. Bayard Rustin. Now, Bayard changed the course of American history, and he truly embodies the whole concept behind the word community. So we decided to spend a whole hour on him. But even after spending a whole hour, I mean, Bayard just did so much, we, we couldn't cover it all. So if you go to our website at stateoftheunion.com, that's stateoftheunion.com, you can read more information about Bayard, listen to his music, find links to organizations and documentaries that have been created on his life. Also at the website, there's a button that says participate. To do a show like this, it takes a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, but it also takes a lot of money. So we're asking you, if you can, to donate a couple dollars to the cause. You can just click there and go to PayPal and send us just a few dollars. We are not asking for you to send us a check for a million Although, if you'd like to, I wouldn't say no. But whatever you can give, it'd be great. And let us know what you think about the episode. We would love to hear from you. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the show. From the Public Radio Exchange and NPR, you're listening to State of the Reunion. I'm Al Letson, and every episode we travel to an American city or town and ask, what makes community? Who are the people that bring it together? What are the issues they face? For Black History Month, we're doing something a little different. Instead of a specific place, we're visiting a time. An era in American history that is fading from memory. And we're going to look at that time through the life of one man. It's February 1956, Montgomery, Alabama. A young preacher named Martin Luther King is leading a bus boycott after a black woman, Rosa Parks, refused to give up her seat on a city bus. At this point, you have to understand that Montgomery is one match away from an explosion. The racial tensions in the city are high, and no one knows how this will end. On this day, a dark car pulls up to Dr. King's house. Two African-American men get out of the car, walk up to the porch, nod to the armed guards by the door, and are escorted into King's sitting room. And when we were ushered into Dr. King's living room, I said, watch out, Bill, there's a gun in that chair, because he was about to sit on the gun. That is the voice of the most important civil rights leader that I'd never heard of. A Mr. Bayard Rustin. Now, Bayard is an activist from up north. He'd been applying the Gandhian principles of nonviolent protest to the civil rights cause long before anyone had ever heard of Martin Luther King. When the bus boycott began, it was clear that this was the moment the civil rights struggle had been waiting for. But Bayard knew that fundamental changes had to be made in order for the boycott to be a success. I think it is fair to say that uh, Dr. King's view of uh, nonviolent tactics was almost non-existent when the boycott began. In other words, at that point, Dr. King was permitting himself and his children and home to be protected by guns. Which is understandable given the very real dangers King and his followers were facing. Bayard spoke to King passionately about his belief that the presence of guns compromised the boycott and could become a dangerous liability. His point was illustrated when late one night, the armed guards posted at King's house almost shot a young boy delivering a telegram. That incident brought Dr. King up against the implications of these guns. And uh, we talked many, many hours about tactics of nonviolence. And uh, I presume that Dr. King may have learned something from those discussions. And the universe exhaled. 
When I first heard this story of Bayard schooling Martin Luther King on the practice of nonviolence, I imagine that my thoughts were similar to Dr. King's as he sat across from Bayard for the first time. You see, they were two months into the boycott. The participants had been beaten, arrested, and King's home had been bombed, and Mr. Rustin was telling him to get rid of the guns. No protection. I'm sure that Dr. King sat there, thought about his wife, his children, himself, and what Bayard was asking him to do, and thought, who is this man? He was the American Gandhi we had been looking for. Bayard Rustin was a fighter for racial justice and peace in the United States. March 17, 1912, Westchester, Pennsylvania. Bayard Rustin, born to a teenage mother, raised by his grandmother whose Quaker roots run deep. But his grandmother told him not to take nothing from nobody, yet all around him injustice prevails. Who is this man that as a teenager fought segregation, one man sit-ins, protesting, challenging, shaking up the status quo. Who is this man? He was very innovative, very creative in his ideas. But also he had a kind of strategic mind. And he was an incredible organizer. At an early age, knew he was different. Because he lived his life very openly and there was no snickering around that fired his, his gay you know, behind his back. Because he was very straightforward in who he was. Comfortable in his own skin at a time when his skin was a detriment. Comfortable with being gay when gayness was a crime. Comfortable with standing for what he believed when what he believed pushed against the grain. People took a liking to him, or maybe they hated his guts in some cases. Joins the pacifists, vows to create racial equality in a segregated land, vows to fight with words, to sharpen his intellect, thinks outside the box. But as the country fights the Second World War, the peaceful warrior refuses to pick up a gun. Rustin declares himself a conscientious objector, which leads to a jail sentence in federal prison during World War II for two and a half years. Locked in a jail cell, far from the Red Oaks of Westchester, they tell him to just be quiet and serve your time. Rustin, being the man that he is, doesn't just go to prison and decide, well, I'll sit here until they let me out, but he decides he's going to organize in the prison against racial segregation. Who is this man? Just before he was about to launch a strike, prison officials pull him aside and bring him up on charges of engaging in sexual activity with other inmates. And the remaining two years in prison were a torture for him. Quiet little bird, or we'll clip your wings. Don't fly too high, or we'll push you down. Don't dream of the sky, or we will wake you up. Then I get down on my knees, and I pray. But his voice won't be silent. He sings in the night. Democratization and socialization the Negro cannot do alone. He sings in the night. We are nonviolent because injury to one is injury to all. He sings in the night. Now we are all one, and if we don't know it, we will learn it the hard way. Who is this man? Black, gay, pacifist, friend, activist, rebel rouser, human being who changed the world but the history books left behind. We declare our right on this earth to be a human being, to be respected as a human being, which we intend to bring into existence by any means necessary. There is no Negro problem. There is no Southern problem. There is no Northern problem. There is only an American problem. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Now, when most of us think about the civil rights movement, we tend to think about Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X. But all of that begins to happen in the mid-1950s. 
but Bayard, on the other hand, was doing his work in the 40s. A decade before the Montgomery bus boycott, Bayard and others set out on what they called the Journey of Reconciliation. In 1944, Irene Morgan, a black woman, got on a bus going from Virginia to Maryland. She was arrested for sitting in the white section. Her case went all the way to the Supreme Court, where they ruled it was unconstitutional to demand segregation on interstate travel. That ruling presented an opportunity to fight racial injustice directly. The organization that Byard was working for, the Fellowship of Reconciliation, decided to send a mixed group of black and white men to travel together through the Upper South to test the enforcement of the ruling. And we didn't know what was going to happen. George Hauser worked with Byard through the 40s and 50s and joined him on that journey. Each day we would decide on two guinea pigs. Egal Redenko was another participant in the journey. I mean, a black and a white would sit together in the front, or two whites would sit in the back, or two blacks would sit in the front. And the others on the trip would act as observers, so that if and when these cases came to court, they could act as witnesses. The small, unlikely group started out from D.C. and made their way south. And for the most part, the trip went smoothly until April 13, 1947. It was a lazy Sunday afternoon in Chapel Hill, and there were an awful lot of taxicab drivers not doing very much business. Now, I was to be in the second group that day. We were staying at the home of Reverend Charles Jones, a Presbyterian minister. Byard was in the first group, and the two persons who were in jeopardy were Joe Fillman, white, and Andy Johnson, black. And I was sitting somewhere in the back over a wheel, and Byard was sitting just behind me. And then the, the bus driver sort of got into the bus ready to, to take off, and he looked around, counting his passengers, and he saw these two people sitting together in the third seat behind him. And he came over and he told them they couldn't do it. So they were arrested immediately, both of them. The police station was just across the street. At that point, Byard and Eagle, who were seated in the out of jeopardy, decided they would take the seats which uh, the other two had just been arrested from. They then were arrested, and I came down with bail money. And we saw a bunch of people, a growing number of people outside at the, at the bus station of muttering around and milling around and looking in our direction and the center of this were the cabbies. You guys will never get out of town till alive tonight, they said to us. Well, Reverend Charlie Jones came down and we all piled in his car. The cab cab drivers followed us. These two cabs drew up in front of the house, and about eight or ten men started across the lawn with, with clubs or sticks or something, and, and we were really, you know, in a sweat. Byard was a very courageous guy. We stood together looking out the window at the taxi cab drivers from the front room of uh, Charlie Jones' home. And he smiley said, look, George, look at these guys. They're so angry. So we could, we could smile at the incident while it was taking place, but we're a, a little nervous about it at the same time because you don't know what's going to happen. And then another car came up, and some guy came out and talked to them, and they left. And my assumption, our assumption was that this guy said, well, let's not do it in, in day, open daylight. And the police came after about 20 minutes so that we were able to leave the house. And then we proceeded on with, with the rest of the journey. We had 12 arrests that took place in the two weeks that we traveled. But we were before the main thrust of the civil rights movement. We were, in a sense, I guess you could say pioneers. The journey of reconciliation propels Bayard to the forefront of the civil rights cause. But as we'll find out after the break, he soon makes a mistake that nearly cost him everything. You're listening to State of the Reunion. 
You're listening to State of the Reunion. I'm Al Letton, and this week for Black History Month, we're taking the whole hour to talk about a man who changed the course of American history, Mr. Bayard Rustin. Now, the late 40s is a heady time for Bayard. After the journey of reconciliation, he begins to travel abroad, spending time in India working with Gandhi's successor, and he's sought after in Africa by several independence movements fighting colonization. Now, when he returns to the States, he tours the country giving performances that are part lecture, part concerts. See, Bayard has an amazing gift as an orator, but he also has a beautiful voice. Now, this is a work song, and very typical of the way in which... All men raised their hammers together and they all fell together. Take this hammer. He would lecture on the evils of colonialism and midway through the speech sing a spiritual to illustrate his point. Carry it to the captain. Then one night in January 1953 on his speaking tour in Southern California, everything changes. He goes out one evening after his work is over and meets two men and is in a parked car having sex. Professor John D'Amelio has studied Bayard's life for over 12 years and has written one of the defining biographies on Bayard entitled Lost Prophet. And he is discovered in downtown Pasadena by the Los Angeles County Police and he's arrested on a public lewdness charge along with the two other men who were in the car. And it becomes this huge public scandal. He looked desolate. He looked shattered. Dave McReynolds was a young activist then who looked to Bayard as a mentor. And I went out to see Bayard when he was in the county jail. He had a 60-day term. And he was completely shattered because this was not an arrest which was a, a moral principle of any kind at all. Sitting in that jail cell in Pasadena... He must have felt like everything he'd worked for was slipping through his fingers. In the 50s, the stigma of being gay was a heavy burden to bear. What Jimmy didn't know was that Ralph was sick. A sickness that was not visible like smallpox, but no less dangerous and contagious. A sickness of the mind. You see, Ralph was a homosexual. A person who... Bayard's arrest makes national news, and this may be the lowest point in his life. Humiliated, not wishing to bring shame on the Fellowship of Reconciliation, he resigns. Eventually, he joins another peace organization, the War Resisters League, where he works on issues he's passionate about. The difference being is that he's moved out of the spotlight and concentrates his efforts behind the scene. And then, in 1956, history comes calling. Just the other day, uh, one of the fine citizens of our community, Mrs. Rosa Parks, was arrested because she refused to give up her seat for a white passenger. Which brings us back to that night in Montgomery when Bayard first goes to see Dr. King. This is, you know, one of the ways in which Bayard Rustin affects the course of history in a significant way. Dr. King, of course, proves to be a man of enormous talents. And he was also a young man who did not have political organizing experience, and that's what Bayard was able to provide. He was able to become Dr. King's tutor at a very early stage in King's career. Bayard gives the Montgomery boycott something it desperately needs, not just the expulsion of guns, but a righteous indignation, the feeling that they're on the right side of history. When the arrest warrants were issued for a number of the boycott's leaders, Bayard tells him, put on your Sunday best, go as a group, turn yourself in, make it a celebration, show them that you are not scared, show them that you are on the side of justice. You see, the boycott tells blacks, not just in Montgomery, but across the nation, that that they have power, that they can make change, that the future they dream of for their children is right around the corner and they may not be able to take a bus to get there. They may have to walk, carpool, or take a taxi. It may take longer than they'd like, but they will get there. And go home to my God and be free. Bayard knows that in order for the boycott to work, it has to spread beyond Montgomery. The protest catches the imagination of the nation, but now they had to cast their net wider. And I had said to Dr. King that I don't think you can win in Montgomery 
unless these other places are better organized. So Dr. King said, what do you think we ought to do? And I said, I think there's only one thing to do, and that is to bring all these groups into a single organization. That conversation is the beginning of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. With the help of several others, Bayard and Dr. King gather some 60 ministers from across the South. Their goal is to create an organization that will coordinate and support nonviolent direct action to fight segregation. Bayard serves as a liaison between King and several Northern civil rights leaders. His longstanding connections with prominent figures like A. Philip Randolph and A.J. Musty prove beneficial to the young organization. After a series of victories in the South, they begin to plan mass demonstrations at the Democratic and Republican conventions when Byard's past catches up with him. Historian John D'Amelio. And at that point, the Reverend Adam Clayton Powell from New York City, representative in Congress from Harlem, doesn't like how public Rustin is becoming, doesn't like that civil rights forces are going to target his Democratic Party, doesn't like that he's not controlling what's happening in this political arena. Powell, pressured by the Democratic Party and possibly his own ambitions, lets it be known to Dr. King that if he doesn't withdraw his support from the demonstrations, he'll release to the press that King and Bayard are lovers. It's a completely ridiculous thing. There isn't an, a shred of truth to it. But it leads King to panic and Bayard realizes that King is not going to defend him and stand up to Powell. And so uh, Rustin chooses to resign. And it happens again. Bayard's sexuality follows him like a shadow, a readily available weapon for his opponents to neutralize him and his work. In what has become a pattern when these accusations surface, Bayard chooses to remove himself from the front line and quietly works in the background. Occasionally, he advises King from a distance, but he has no official role in the civil rights movement until A. Philip Randolph, who'd been a mentor to Bayard since the 40s, begins to engage him once again. By the beginning of 1963, the civil rights movement was so in the headlines and was creating so much upheaval that Rustin and Randolph, and I don't think one can ever know who brought it up first, but Rustin and Randolph in a conversation together at the end of 1962 say, well, you know, in 1941, we talked about having a march on Washington and we never did it. Maybe now is the time. The 1963 March on Washington was a long time a coming, so to speak. Rochelle Horowitz has been working for Bayard ever since she was an idealistic college student in Brooklyn in the late 50s. And originally, it was going to be a march for economic justice. Uh, but then events caught up with the planners, so to speak. The Kennedy administration has just filed a civil rights bill that shifts and broadens the focus of the march from solely economic issues to include equal rights. Now, the leaders of all the major civil rights organizations all know that Bayard is the man to organize the march, but they're scared that his sexuality could become an issue. A. Philip Randolph, the elder statesman of civil rights, well-respected by all parties, declares that he will be the organizer and he'll appoint his staff as he sees fit, and Bayard would be his right hand. Bayard was named the deputy director or some Mickey Mouse title, but everybody knew that it was Bayard who was really organizing and making this thing happen. We actually, I think, organized the march itself once everybody agreed to it in about eight to six weeks. And... Um, Work began very early in the morning, ended very late at night, and continued on um, through Sundays when often we'd have staff meetings and Bayard would give us the half day off at 3 o'clock. Well, by that time, it was 1963, um, I was a veteran rust in hand, and he asked me if, if I would be the transportation coordinator which I thought was pretty funny because I was 24 years old at that point and I didn't know how to drive. I was a typical New Yorker. Um, but he said, no, no, you're compulsive and I know that you will not lose one bus. My job in preparation of the march was to help to bring as many uh, poor people from the South to the march as possible. 
My name is Joyce Ladner. I met Byron at Ruston in the summer of 1963 in New York. I had to go out uh, around New York, metropolitan area of New York City, to raise as much money as possible. One of my friends, Rochelle Horowitz, always says that each time I went out to raise money, I came back with enough to charter yet another bus to bring a busload of people up to the march. Byard was absolutely adamant that this was going to be a peaceful day. And all the press before we planned the march was virtually hysterical, you know, that they'd have to call in the National Guard, that if all these black folks came to Washington, there would be riots. And Byard was determined that not only would the march be peaceful, but it would go beyond that, that it would police itself um, and that it would be absolutely nonviolent. The major thing we decided was that we would have only black police inside the march policing and only white police on the fringes where the Ku Klux Klan and other uh, bigots were coming in. So that you reduce the possibility of violence by having whites arresting whites who misbehave and blacks arresting blacks who misbehave. So virtually every day during the planning of the march, groups of 30 policemen and firemen would come up to march headquarters and Bayard would take them into a back alley, so to speak, and show them how to um, non-violently move people in a crowd. You sort of do that by linking arms and pushing gently, and really trained them in non-violence. He believed that if things are well organized, people will naturally be well behaved. But for all the meticulous planning Bayard is doing, there are some things he has no control over. Bayard had been very frightened or worried that uh, the gay issue would come up before the march. And Strom Thurmond took the floor of the Senate maybe three or four weeks before the date of the march. Strom Thurmond, senator from South Carolina and bitter enemy of desegregation, stands on the Senate floor and rails against Bayard and the march. He calls Bayard a draft dodger, a communist, a homosexual, and includes details of his arrest. Panic spreads through the march's office. I mean, Bayard must feel like it's happening all over again. At the dawn of what could be his greatest accomplishment, a mistake from 10 years ago could take it all away. But A. Philip Randolph would not be coward. Randolph calls a press conference because they have to deal with it. And Randolph, who was nothing if not extremely dignified, said... uh, How dare a segregationist like Strom Thurmond condemn someone for immorality. We stand by Bayard Rustin. He is our organizer. He is Mr. March on Washington. And it's that moment, really, that is the end of using the gay charge against Rustin effectively. The the gay issue had been taken away. By, ironically, by Strom Thurmond. Five, four, three, two, one. Well, the day of the march was incredible. I think probably by three and four in the morning, we were all awake. We were on the mall, um, and Bayard had his pad and was doing everything. Uh, he was making sure that the sound system was working. Three. The the mall is dead. I'll tell you, I don't think I've ever been so nervous at the beginning. The one thing I remember above all others is the press was around us and they said, Mr. Rustin, it's five o'clock in the morning. You said there were going to be a quarter of a million people here. We don't see 5,000 people yet. Where are they all? I took a blank piece of paper out of my pocket and looked at it. I pulled my watch out and I looked at it and I said, gentlemen, everything is going according to schedule. And I am standing next to him. And I said to him, Bart, what are you talking about? He said, I don't know, I just made it up. And sure enough, at a given time, people began to come off the trains and the buses arrived. What about that train march? Do you want to be free? Around nine o'clock in the morning, from every direction that you looked, you could see these people coming in and cars, buses, on foot. It was absolutely exhilarating. It was mostly exhilarating because the crowd was about 50-50 black and white. 
and the place filled up so rapidly. I saw people marching, you know, from, I guess, the train station or wherever the buses were, marching, I don't know, a hundred deep or whatever, you know, but each group, they were marching under banners. And ask you to assemble in your respective groups and begin the march for freedom now. I pledge my heart and my mind and my body to the achievement of social peace. We must say that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. Slow down. We, are tired. we will not stop our militant, peaceful demonstrations. We will not come off of the streets. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. And now, Fired Rustin, Deputy Director of the March, will read the demand. At the end of the rally at the Lincoln Memorial, Rustin gets his moment in the sun when he leads the crowd in a recitation of what the ten demands of the March on Washington were. The first demand is that we have effective civil rights legislation. And he reads each of them into the microphone standing on the podium. Uh, and hears back the shout from all of the people who are assembled there on the mall. What do you say? We demand that segregation be ended in every school district in the year 1963. And it's really the... You know, at this point, he knows the march has been as successful as it can possibly be, and he had a lot to do with it. Some people say, well, it was more like a picnic than a protest. Well, when a quarter of a million people can come to speak to their government, and it is more like a picnic than a protest. That is a salute to everyone who attended and to the response which our government gave. I believe the March on Washington said to the American people, we are now capable of having that kind of love and affection and absence of bigotry, which means we can become one nation. Into my grave and I'll go home to my Lord and be free. We all remember Martin Luther King giving the I Have a Dream speech. It's a beautiful moment in American history. But it wouldn't have happened without Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph. So, how do you follow that up? After you've made history, what do you do next? That answer might surprise you. When we come back, Bayard moves into the next stage of his life. You're listening to State of the Reunion. You're listening to State of the Reunion. I'm Al Letson, and on today's show, we're featuring the life of Mr. Bayard Rustin. As the chief architect of the March on Washington, Bayard has made history. The event's a huge success, earning Bayard and A. Philip Randolph the cover of Life magazine. The march gives an urgency to the Civil Rights Bill working its way through Congress, but the afterglow of that event doesn't last long, as Bayard's assistant, Rochelle Horowitz, recalls. After the march itself, I think we had a week or two of euphoria where we thought we will now go forward, we will pass the bill, we're going to walk into the sunshine, you know, and then there was the bombing in Birmingham where the four little girls were killed. Eighteen days after the march on Washington, Birmingham, Alabama, a bomb exploded in the 16th Street Baptist Church just before a Sunday morning service. Fifteen people were injured. Four children were killed. These are hard times for the United States. 
The death of those four little girls shatters an idealism that was born on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And just four months later, President Kennedy is assassinated. So that ended euphoria, and we knew that the struggle had to continue and would take a long time. Lyndon B. Johnson becomes president, and with his legislative muscle, he's able to pass several significant laws that ban discrimination on the base of race. With the federal government marching in step with the civil rights agenda, Bayard decides now is the time to shift strategies. We are in a totally different period. In the old period, all the youngsters needed was bravery and perseverance. They just sat at the restaurants, they swam in the swimming pools, no matter what they did to them. They arrested them, they'd come back, they beat them, they'd come back, and finally get a breakthrough. No young Negroes today, with mere courage and perseverance, are going to make any contribution. I think Rustin starts marching a bit out of step with many others in the black freedom struggle. Professor John D'Amelio. Don't spend all your time in one rally or protest after another, but throw yourself into the political system until we become the people who actually are making the laws of the land. I say, my dear friends, that no economic or social order has ever been developed on the basis of color. It must be developed on the basis of class. Rustin developed something called the Freedom Budget, which was a document that was designed to show how the federal government, by reapportioning its resources, could actually end poverty in America and make everyone free. Because the problem is not plain prejudice, which is there in all people. It is that the economic and social order, where there are not enough jobs in this society, where there is not enough housing in this society, where there is not enough medical care in this society. Bayard's concepts have evolved as he moves from protest to politics, the idea of working inside the machine to achieve your agenda. Now, we tend to think of events as singular, mutually exclusive, but that's usually not how it occurs. Events are often overtaken by other events, and the national agenda shifts. For example, currently we're at war while our economy is struggling, scientists are worried about global warming, healthcare is an issue, and so on, and so on, and so on. All of that happening at the same time. So... When Bayard is announcing his freedom budget, he has several factors that begin to work against him. One of them is the younger generation of civil rights activists. It wasn't a popular message at the time because a younger generation was feeling its strength and its power as protesters and didn't have much faith in the political system to make the kind of change they wanted. Many of us feel, many of our generation feel, that they're getting ready to commit genocide against us. Young activists like Stokely Carmichael, who'd once idolized Bayard, were finding their voice, and the tenor of that voice was very different from the stances that Bayard has taken. We have to recognize who our major enemy is. The major enemy is not your brother, flesh of your flesh, and blood of your blood. The major enemy is the hunky and his institutions of racism. That's the major enemy. That is the major enemy. We want black power, whatever that is, with no real definition of it. We want self-respect. We want Negro dignity, all of which I am in favor of. But it is another blind alley. Because dignity and self-respect must spring from the economic and social position which you hold in the society. While the black power movement is gaining momentum, the war in Southeast Asia is peaking at a fevered pitch. Vietnam takes all the oxygen in the room, leaving Bayard's causes in the background. Psychologically, the war in Vietnam has trapped us. It has split the civil rights movement down the middle. It has caused many white people who were in it to say, 
That must wait now until we stop Vietnam. There were disagreements between him and Dr. King about Dr. King's opposing the war and bringing the movement into it. He thought the civil rights movement had to stay separate and not be, not that individuals couldn't do it, but that it had to be a distinct movement and not get into that controversy. Bayard is a peace activist who strangely doesn't come out hard against the war. In a time when pacifist organizations were in overdrive, Bayard was largely silent. Uh, my own views on the war were complicated. As most conflicts that democracy is involved in are complicated. It was a question of um, priorities. He opposed the Vietnam War. He absolutely believed that his job and the most important thing he could do at this point was continue to pursue the black economic struggle. And he saw it being subsumed by the opposition to the Vietnam War. Where Rustin departed from many anti-war activists is that he refused to demonize Lyndon Johnson. Rustin believed that Lyndon Johnson had done more than any other president since Abraham Lincoln to forward racial equality in the United States. And he was not willing to write off Johnson because Johnson was fighting this unpopular war. I think psychologically the leadership of the pacifist organizations that he belonged to felt abandoned. And I think they never understood right from the beginning that his, his main interest was primarily the struggle for black freedom. And so I think there was a psychological problem. And so in the midst of pushing for his freedom budget, these factors merged to form the perfect storm. Now I come therefore to the freedom budget because the freedom budget is for the purpose of restoring hope. We talk about survival, that's all. They can cut all that junk about poverty program, education, housing, welfare. There is only one difference between a man who is rich and one who is poor. One has money and one does not. We're in Vietnam to fulfill one of the most solemn pledges of the American nation. Until the president stands up and says we'll bring uh, the troops home as quickly as we can bring them home, the anti-war sentiment in the country will continue to grow. And if anyone expects me to go back to the ghetto and tell Negroes that I've just been talking to my white liberal friends who have convinced me that nothing for you can be done till the war in Vietnam is over, then I think I must have holes in my head. And you are dumb enough to walk around continuing to identify yourself with that party. You are not only a chump, but you're a traitor to your race. We have to fight for the war on poverty. Why do we have to fight for it? Because we must continue to establish the population as an obligation to the Bayard's strategy is falling apart. The freedom budget fails despite early support from hundreds of groups and congressmen. The black power movement has labeled him an Uncle Tom, and the members of the pacifist community, a community he's been a part of since the 40s, are leery of him. Bayard is a big idea man in a nation that no longer has the stomach for a social movement of that scale. But that doesn't stop Bayard, who continues to work in the trenches, co-founding the A. Philip Randolph Institute, an organization that works on civil rights and labor issues. It's in these years that once again Bayard's personal life takes center stage, but this time it's a little different. Well, we met really quite by chance. You know, in New York City, we were just kind of waiting for a light to change and looked at each other and said hello and started talking. At that moment, I wasn't quite sure who he was, except that he was a very attractive, uh, dignified, well-dressed, uh, friendly man. Walter Nagel was Bayard's partner for 10 years. You know, in his personal life, he was really very warm and friendly and with a wonderful sense of humor and kind of an impish, devilish kind of sense of humor, playing practical jokes on people and doing things like that, and really very generous in spirit. Walter is much younger than Bayard, and because there was no marriage or civil union for them, in 1982, Bayard legally adopted Walter. He wanted to do something to protect my rights. And also we were very aware of a situation where a partner becomes sick and is in the hospital and their loving partner is turned away because they have no legal 
rights to visit and to, you know, have any say in their health care. And we wanted to do whatever we could to avoid that kind of a situation. So we began a, a legal adoption process, which eventually went through. It was through Bayard's relationship with Walter that after a lifetime of activism and speaking out on issue after issue, his sexuality became something he could speak more publicly about. Now, Bayard had never hidden his sexuality. But I think that by the time he met me, a lot of his associations with his sexual orientation, at least in terms of the public perception, they were negative. You know, they were negative. Bayard had always been comfortable with his sexuality, but it had been used against him for so long it was hard to shed all those bad memories. I think perhaps my relationship with Bayard, if anything, affirmed the sense or the idea that you can have a positive relationship with a person of the same sex. You know, here was somebody who, you know, we had a loving, peaceful, um, committed relationship for 10 years, and I think that... um, That may have made him feel more comfortable talking about it. In the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, when Rustin was experiencing all of these attacks around being gay, most people didn't think of sexuality and sexual identity as having anything to do with politics and social justice. By the 1980s, things are changing quite a bit in the United States. Uh, There was a gay liberation movement. Bayard gets involved with the struggle for gay rights. He begins to speak at gay conferences and address meetings of gay activists. He also uses his clout to champion gay causes. You see, many of the people he had worked with in the past had eventually done what Bayard proposed and moved from protests to politics. The barometer for judging the character of people in regard to human rights is now those who consider themselves gay, homosexual, lesbian. The judgment as to whether you can trust for the future, the social advancement depending on people, will be judged on where they come out on that question. And if they come out poorly on that question, they will come out poorly on all other human rights questions. In 1986, Bayard testifies in front of the New York City Council, a bill he's lobbied for to add sexual orientation to the city's human rights laws being challenged. He tells the members of the council, History demonstrates that no group is ultimately safe from prejudice, bigotry, and harassment so long as any group is subject to special negative treatment. The bill remains unchanged, and this will be Bayard's final victory. I ain't got long to stay Tombstones are busting, poor sinner stands trembling. A year later, August 24th, 1987, Bayard Rustin would pass away from a ruptured appendix. In his obituary, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan was quoted as saying, He gave us love, he gave us peace. Many years ago, someone, I I can't remember who, told me that Martin Luther King's chief advisor was a gay man, but no one knows about him. I did a little research, and I I was shocked because he had done so much, and I'd never heard of him. I thought, if I ever had the opportunity, I would tell people about Bayard Rustin, because it's stories like his that make us the United States of America. All across the country, people are doing things to help in their community, to help each other, and they are the reason this country is great. And that's what this series, State of the Reunion, is all about. We hope you join us in our upcoming season as we feature communities across the country and people like Bayard Rustin who make a difference. Ladies and gentlemen, Bayard Rustin. Now we are all one, and if we don't know it, we will learn it the hard way. Rustin always made the point that you fight for racial justice not because of your racial identity, but because it's the right thing to do. The problem can never be stated in terms of black and white. 
Rustin always said of himself, I hope to God that if I were born white, I would also be fighting for racial justice because this is the right thing to do. Any movement which begins by blocking out the active cooperation of the best minds, many of which are white as well as black, is fighting a losing battle. Byatt was a behind-the-scenes person, and we don't often know that much about behind-the-scenes people. But the, it takes the behind-the-scenes people to get things done. A lot of times nowadays, people tend to take demonstrations and gatherings and things for granted. But the 1963 march was really the first of its type. And because of Bard's organizing genius and all of the people that he gathered around him to help him, uh, it, it was able to be a beautiful and a meaningful day, which that changed the course of American history in a lot of ways. We the enforcement of the 14th Amendment. We have a black president right now. Never would have happened. Never had it not been for some of, the, some of the lives and some of the discipline of people who came before to lay down that groundwork that made a, a Hillary Clinton possible, that made a Barack Obama possible. Brothers and sisters, we cannot walk alone. In the struggle for justice and for equality, we cannot walk alone. President Obama said himself, I would not be here were it not for Dr. King. Well, I know that Dr. King would have not been Dr. King without Byard. Now won't you sit down, sit down, I can't sit down. Sit down, sit down, I can't sit down. Now won't you sit down, sit down, I can't sit down. Just got to heaven, wanna move around. Sit down. This episode's been an overview of Byard's life, but by no means a comprehensive study. The man just did too much to fit into one hour. For more info on Byard, please check out our website, stateoftheunion.com. You'll find stories on his music, photos, and links to organizations and other documentaries on Byard. Special thanks to Columbia University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the LBJ Presidential Library, Cornell University, and Pike Malinowski. Who Is This Man was produced by Tina Antolini with help from producers Zach Rosen, Brenton Crozier, and Bree Burge. Our senior editor is Taki Telenitis. Beats by Willie Evans Jr. and Ian D'Souza is the Cardinal of Cool. State of the Reunion is funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and presented by PRX. I'm Al Letson. And remember, things fall apart. Your job is to put them back together. Sit down, sit down, Lord, I can't sit down. Sit down, sit down, I can't sit down. Just got to heaven, wanna move around.